All right, church, we come now to the preaching of the Word of God this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew 26. We're going to continue in our study of the Gospel of Matthew together this morning. And we're going to take a moment, as we always do, before we study God's Word together, we're going to ask for God's help, the help of the Holy Spirit. And so let's pray now and let's call upon the name of the Lord. Father, we come to you today in Jesus' name, and Lord, you are faithful, and we declare it, God, and we believe it, Lord, and we ask that you would demonstrate it again this morning, that, that you are a faithful Father, that you give us what we need, what we truly need, even the things that we're not aware that we need, Lord, you give good gifts to your children, and Lord, we ask to be fed and to be instructed and to be nourished this morning by your word. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be faithful to your word. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give, give us a heart to hear your word and to do your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, many of us have heard it said... That it's not whether, it's not how you start that counts, it's how you finish. And we've heard this, and this is certainly true in many different areas. It's true in sports, it's true in school, it's true in marriage. It's not how you start those things, it's how you finish those things that counts. This morning I want us to note together how true that is. For the Christian life. The, it's not how you start the Christian life that counts. It's how you finish the Christian life that counts. The Apostle Paul recognized this. At the end of his life, he declared this phrase. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And I have kept the faith. And for every believer in the room this morning, that ought to be your aim and your ambition is not only to start out following Jesus, but to fight the good fight, to finish the race, and to keep the faith till the very end. Brothers and sisters, we must follow Jesus to the very end. We are uh, those whom the word uh, of God describes as those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. That's us. That's the church of Jesus Christ. And this is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The saints not only trust in Jesus at the beginning, but they persevere with Christ to the very end. Now one of the things that you'll sometimes see, and the longer you're a Christian, the more you will see it, is that sometimes people start the Christian life and then they drift away from Jesus Christ. And sometimes those drifters never come back. They don't return to Christ. They start following, but they don't finish following Jesus. This morning, we're going to consider the greatest example of apostasy that ever was and ever will be. It will serve us as an object lesson as we continue in our study of Matthew's gospel, a warning to us. No one has ever finished as poorly as the man we're going to give attention to 
this morning. His name was Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Jesus Christ. And so let's turn this morning to Matthew 26, and let's read God's word together, beginning in verse 14, and we'll read this morning through verse 25. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? And he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, you have said so. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. Now, as we have come through Matthew's gospel, we have noticed there are several times where Jesus prophesies the cross and his suffering and his passion. In other words, this didn't take Jesus by surprise. And one of the specific things that Jesus prophesied is that he was going to be delivered over to the chief priest. He said that. He said that in Matthew chapter 17, verse 22. He said it again in chapter 20, verse 18. And so this this account comes as no surprise to the Lord Jesus, but to us, some gaps are being filled in. Okay, The careful reader of the gospel knows that Jesus is going to be delivered over, but this story introduces us to the traitor, the agent... In this treacherous transaction is one of the twelve. His name is Judas. Verse 14 begins describing him as one of the twelve. <coughs> and I want to spend just a moment at the beginning of our time really pressing that language, one of the twelve that we would have a good understanding of just how close Judas was to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to spend a minute doing that this morning. Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve. And we'll start with this example. I want you to consider this morning, if I asked you to take out a blank piece of paper, 
and I ask you to sketch a picture of Jesus Christ, an accurate picture of Jesus Christ. And, you know, and, and the word accurate is key there because you're scratching your head because none of us have any idea of the physical characteristics of Jesus. You've never seen him with your eyes, okay? And the thing I want you to, although that's true for all of us, the thing that I want us to remember, that wasn't true for Judas. He saw the Lord Jesus. He knew Jesus' face. He could sketch it out on a piece of paper if you gave him the opportunity. He could vividly recall, think of the privilege. He could vividly recall at any moment the, the picture of the face of the sinless Son of God. And not only that, if you, if you would ask him if he could articulate for you how Jesus' voice sounded. How did Jesus sound when he talked? Judas could do that because Judas heard him. Judas could recount the mannerisms of the Lord Jesus. How he carried himself. Judas could have told you what Jesus liked to eat and what he liked to drink. Judas could have told you what made the Lord Jesus laugh. And all those things we can only speculate about. But Judas saw him. Judas was with him. And you see, not only could Judas tell you these things about Jesus, and that would be enough, he could tell you these things almost better than anybody else in the world. Why? Because he was one of the twelve. We're pressing that language in verse 14. He's one of the twelve. Mark chapter 3 verse 14 gives basically the job description of the twelve apostles. And here's what it says. Jesus appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And so I want us to remember that Judas was a privileged member of this inner circle that lived in the closest proximity to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus called the twelve to be with him, to be right there beside him. And for about a three-year period, these men left all. Some of the disciples were fishermen. They left their nets and they followed Jesus some of them were tax collectors and they left their tax booths and followed Jesus. These 12 left their lives and followed Jesus around Israel. They followed the rabbi wherever he went for about a three-year period, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And so I want us to understand that there was never a man more privileged than Judas. He lived with Jesus. Now think about this. Some of you in here, not many of us, but some of us grew up with really godly parents or really godly examples. And you look back on those you know, years in your life and you're so thankful to God that not only was the gospel preached to you, but it was modeled to you with righteous character, with godly character. And I want us to consider for a moment that no one ever had a more righteous example than Judas had. 
Judas lived with a sinless man for three years. We speculate, what would that look like to live with a man totally devoted to prayer? Always in communion with his Father in heaven. Unbroken communion with his Father in heaven. Always setting the Lord before him. Always doing the will of his Father in heaven. Judas knew what that looked like. It had a face to him. He lived with a man of prayer. He lived with a man who perfectly obeyed the law of God. He lived with a man who perfectly loved God. And perfectly loved every single one of his neighbors. He lived with a sinless man. He knew what godliness looked like. Some of us can think back on sermons that we've heard in our Christian life that were extremely influential for us. And we could do this all over the room of, you know, man, man, God used this sermon in my life. And somebody else could say, yeah, God used this sermon in my life. And what about this sermon in my life? And the Lord works through his word and always has. But think about how Judas would have answered that question. What sermon was most impactful for you? What's the greatest sermon you've ever heard, Judas? How does he even pick? He was there every time Jesus Christ preached the word of God. And that's what I want us to really understand. Note the privilege that he had. Note the privilege that he had. No one ever sat under preaching better than the preaching that Judas sat under. Okay? No one. He sat under the preaching of the Lord Jesus. One of the descriptions that Matthew gives of Jesus' preaching is no one ever spoke like this man. That was his preacher. That was his preacher. Not only that, not only did Jesus, Judas hear preaching, Judas was a preacher. And that surprises us. That takes us back. What do you mean he was a preacher? Remember what Mark 3 says. Jesus called these 12 to be with him, number one, and to send them out to preach, number two. Jesus sent his apostles out to preach the gospel of the kingdom, and Judas was numbered among the 12. And this ought to, this ought to make this warning clearer and clearer to us. Not only did Judas know the gospel of the kingdom, he knew the gospel of the kingdom well enough to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Judas was a preacher. He was a preacher of the gospel. And not only that, Judas saw miracles. In other words, we can envision, you know, that he's just kind of tagging along, saying, man, this is, this is so... Uh, ridiculous nobody believes this stuff with his eyes on a weekly basis he is beholding miraculous signs he's there miracle after miracle after miracle let's just take a trip through some of these there was a there was a city in Cana of Galilee Jesus walks into a wedding 
And all of a sudden, water begins to turn into wine. And the Savior does a sign in the middle of the wedding. Judas was there. He saw it. There was another village called Nain where Jesus walks into this village. And this widow has a dead son. And Jesus interrupts this funeral party and raises that dead son. And Judas was there and saw it. He saw the word of Jesus Christ overpower death itself. He saw it with his eyes. He was there when Jesus went into this house off the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and there was this little girl named Talitha, and she was dead in that house. Judas saw the Savior walk into that house, and all of a sudden come out of that house with the little girl who was dead, now alive. When Jesus said, Talitha, I say to you, arise, Judas was there. He saw demons tremble in the presence of Jesus. He didn't read about it. He was there. He was in the room in the synagogue at Capernaum when the man cried out. When the man with the demon cried out that Jesus would not torment them. He was there when when Jesus sent that demon out of that man in front of the whole synagogue. He was there when the whole city tried to kill Jesus for what he did. He was there in the Decapolis where Jesus meets the man who was demon-possessed that lived in the cemetery that, 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 that that was out of his mind. He was there when that man bowed before Jesus and the demons spoke through this man's mouth and Jesus broke the power of darkness with his word. Judas saw it. He was right there. He was there every time the Gospels tell us, and this is a repeated phrase, Jesus you know, goes into the village and preaches the Gospel, and it says, and all the sick were brought to him, and all the demon-possessed. And what does it say every time? And Jesus healed all of them by his word. Judas was there, village after village after village. He saw it over and over and over again. Some people say, if I could just see miracles, then I would believe. I only believe what I can see. I only believe what I can sort out right between my ears, what I can understand. Judas saw it. It was right in front of him. And he rejected it. And we could even push this even further. Not only was he a preacher, not only did he see miracles. Friends, Judas did miracles. I don't know if you ever thought about that before. He did miracles. Mark chapter 3, verse 14. What did Jesus send the 12 out to do? Number one, to be with him. Judas was with Jesus. Number two, he sent them out to preach. Judas was a preacher. Number three, he gave them authority to cast out demons. Judas not only saw demons flee... From the Lord Jesus Christ in the Capernaum synagogue. He saw him flee as he proclaimed the mighty name of Jesus. In Luke 10 we're told that Jesus sends out 72 and he gives them authority. To drive out demons in his name. And this group comes back to Jesus and and, and in amazement says. Lord even the demons are subject to us in your name. Judas was in that group. Judas knew the power of the name of Jesus. Judas not only saw miracles, 
Judas lived miracles on a daily basis for a three-year period. Note the privilege. See how close this man is to Jesus and to the kingdom of God. And don't forget that he was a friend of Jesus. In other words, this is not some cold employer-employee relationship. His master loved him and brought him in close. He brought him in close. We sometimes say silly things like, I know Dak Prescott. And what we mean when we say things like that is, I, I, I brought a football to a football game and he signed it for a second and, and I said, thank you. I know, I know Dak Prescott. And we don't mean that that Judas knew Jesus like we know these famous figures that we saw for about a millisecond in our life. Jesus was a friend to Judas, a friend to him. The closest of relationships, and and note this in verse 23, Jesus says, it's one who dips his hand in the dish, one who dips his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Friends, that's the language of friendship. That's the language of table fellowship. They're sharing meals together. It's one thing to have, you know, a famous person's autograph for five seconds after dinner, but when you say, oh, I ate at his house, and, and by the way, I ate at his house for three years in a row, we're in a whole nother realm here. Jesus was a friend to him. John's gospel says, there's a parallel account in John 13. And in that parallel account, uh, uh, in John's gospel, when Jesus announces, one of you will betray me at the Last Supper, when he gave that announcement, John's gospel tells us that Jesus was troubled in spirit. In other words, this wasn't just this cold mechanical fact that the Savior delivers. This hurt, this this hurt because of the closeness that Jesus shared shared with Judas. And what an insight that is to the humanity of Christ. He's the God-man, but he's a real man. The Savior felt that emotional pain of being betrayed by one that he was close to. He was troubled in spirit. This is the same thing that David gets at in the Psalms. Let me read it to you, Psalm 55. He says, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, my companion, my familiar friend, My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, but war was in his heart. Jesus felt that. You see, the fact that that Judas was one of the twelve, it heightens the betrayal. It heightens the sense of treachery. And that proximity that he had, that closeness that he had with the Lord Jesus, it heightens the guilt that that Judas bears. 
And the greatness of the one he betrays heightens the condemnation that Judas received. This is why Jesus says in verse 24, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. This is Judas. This is his privilege. Now, let's ask for a minute. How could a man that close and with that proximity and that privilege, how could a man like that betray the Lord Jesus Christ? And this text gives us some insight into answering that question. And we want to approach it as though we were doing a spiritual autopsy on, a spirit, on the spiritual corpse of Jesus. Cause of death, what does the scripture say? I want, I want us to start here and notice where this story falls in Matthew's gospel. Notice that this story follows the story of a woman. And you see that earlier in verse 6. And Ron preached that to us last week. And we had the story of a woman who came and poured out very expensive ointment, very costly, and poured it out upon Jesus and anointed Jesus for his death. Now, it's harder to find a sharper contrast in the scriptures between that woman and what she did and the very next scene in Matthew's gospel, Judas and what he did. On the one hand, you have generosity and devotion to Christ. And on the other hand, the very next scene, you have treachery and greed. And this can be traced back to two different views of Jesus. Two different views of Jesus. And that's one piece of the answer. How could a man do this? The man had a low view of Jesus Christ. He had a low view of his master. Think about the contrast of the woman. She saw Jesus as worthy. In fact, she saw Jesus as so worthy that she pours out, I mean, uh, the expensive ointment just to anoint him for his burial. She saw him as worthy. She had a high view of Christ. And yet Judas had a low view of Christ. How do we know that? Well, because he betrayed him, number one, but also because he betrayed, betrayed Jesus for such a low sum of money. He did it for 30 pieces of silver. Now, the Old Testament tells us that 30 pieces of silver was the restitution price if you owned a slave that got gored to death and killed by another man's ox, that man, under God's law, was bound to pay you 30 pieces of silver. It was the restitution price for a slave. And so note the contrast here. The value that the woman assigns to Jesus was very expensive ointment and, and just pours it out. Jesus is worthy of all of my life and all that I have. She just pours it out upon the Savior. But the price tag that Judas placed upon Jesus was the price tag for a dead slave. That's how, value, that's how much value Judas assigned 
to Christ. Now, friends, be warned from this. Be warned from this. That you are never, ever in a more dangerous place than you are when you hear the things of Jesus and are unmoved by the things that you hear about Jesus. Every time that happens, danger, danger, danger. To be exposed to the truths and the glory of Jesus Christ and unmoved by these things is the path of Judas. This is, this is a dangerous road. So one reason you could say that Judas betrayed Jesus is he had a low view of Christ. He had a low view of Christ. But we can say more about his motives. The text gives us more here. Not only was he motivated by a low view of Christ, we are told that he loved himself. Look at verse 15. When he decides to betray Jesus, he he asked this question to Jesus' enemies. What will you give me if I deliver him to you? In other words, the Bible tells us that he wanted to make some benefit in this treacherous transaction. He wanted to figure out a way not only to turn Jesus over, but to benefit himself in the process. What will you give me? Now that little question is like a little window into Judas's psyche. What made this man tick, you could say, is self-interest. It governed all that he did. What's in this for me? This was the operating principle of his entire life. What's in it for me? What can I gain for me? Me, 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 me. Again, be warned about this. Okay, Be warned about this. How dangerous of a place is it to pretend to serve God on the one hand as a pretext and a mask for really serving yourself on the other. That's the path of religious hypocrisy. It's the path of Judas. And it's no wonder that when Jesus preached the gospel, one of the things that we find consistently in the gospel accounts is when he calls people to respond to his message, he says these words, deny yourself, Take up your cross and follow me. Friends, from the very beginning, to come to Jesus Christ, you had to deny yourself. To live the Christian life is to walk with the cross upon your back. To be crucified to the world and even to be crucified to yourself. That's what it means for Jesus to be your Lord. To bow before him as your king. To deny yourself, take up your cross... And to follow him. But we can say even more. It's hard to ignore the role that money played in Judas's apostasy. And if you'll turn with me really quick to John chapter 12. John gives us additional detail in between these two stories that gives us some light. John chapter 12 verse 3. Judas was there. When that woman poured out that very expensive ointment upon Jesus and Judas hated it. He saw it and he hated what, what he saw. Listen, listen to verse 3. 
I'll pick it up right in the middle. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. That little description shows us that long before this account, Judas had lived a double life. He was a thief. And so we have the spiritual autopsy on the spiritual corpse of of Judas Iscariot, cause of death, low view of Christ, love of himself, and love of money. Now, on this last point, this, this light that John gives us that Judas was a thief, I want us to understand this rightly. What should we be warned by? What should we be fearful of and run from and fight in our life? And I don't want you to think about this story as Judas was serving God with all, of he, all that he had, things were going great, and then boom, all of a sudden he turns upon Jesus. That's not how it happened, and it's never how it happens. The man compromised himself long ago, long before the Last Supper, long before this transaction where Judas seeks out the enemies of Jesus and says, what will you give me? And they said something like this, Judas, Judas, how about 30? Judas says, yeah, I think I can do it for 30. 30 it is. Long before that transaction and that day, he lived in unrepentant sin. He lived in unrepentant sin. In other words, I want you to understand the battle was lost long before the Last Supper. And I want us to be warned from this. When we hear about big public you know, figures failing, Christian figures failing, and when we fear, as disciples of Jesus, of falling in that way ourselves, don't be deceived. That never comes out of nowhere. It doesn't happen of, I'm running 100 miles an hour after Jesus, and then, boom, 24-hour period, I find myself... Uh, 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 rebelling against Jesus, apostatizing. It doesn't happen like that. Private compromises precede public failings always. I'll say that again. Private compromises with sin precede public failings. And I want to highlight this always. It always works like this. There are always little uh, 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 Things that we ignore, little, little sins that turn into habitual sins. That always precedes the public failure. In other words, long before the betrayal, Judas had nursed that sin of the love of money. And by ignoring that sin in his life, it undid him. That was his undoing. Now it's hard to say it better than the words, this is the, uh, a phrase in a casting crown song over 10 years old. It says it like this, it's a, it's a slow fade, talking about apostasy, turning from Jesus. When you give yourself away, 
When black and white have turned to gray, people never crumble in a day. It's a slow fade. In other words, the right way to hear this warning about Judas is not this thing that's going to come out of nowhere in your life. It ought to provoke you to fight sin right now. To stop ignoring those things that that are easy to ignore in your life. And his life is an example of how dangerous of a place you're in when you ignore your sin. When we sin, we ought to repent of our sins. The Puritans called this keeping short accounts with God. You sin, you confess it, you turn from it. Quickly. Not playing around with fire. Not being deceived by sin. And so understand, Judas is a man of contradiction. Okay? On the one hand, the man leaves his whole life to follow Jesus for three years. And on the other hand... He throws it away for 30 pieces of silver. Matthew later records Judas's end. He tells us that after this exchange takes place, Judas was sorrowful, not the godly kind that leads to real repentance, but the worldly kind. He was full of worldly sorrow for what he did. He tried to give his money back and he was overwhelmed with sorrow and the Bible says that the man killed himself. This is the end of the betrayer of Jesus as he murdered himself. He committed suicide. And when it's all said and done, the only thing that his money bought him, that 30 pieces of silver, was a burial plot. The only profit that he thought he made turned into... The, the funds that were used to buy the place where his corpse would, would rest. And the Bible tells us that they named the field where he was buried, the field of blood. The field of blood. Now it's been said that sin takes you further than you ever wanted to go, keeps you longer than you ever wanted to stay, and costs you more than you ever wanted to pay. And I want us to consider, never was that truer than in the case of Judas. It cost him everything. It cost him everything. Now, one of the things that we know about Judas was that he was very skilled at hiding his hypocrisy. And the reason we know that is in verse 22, right after Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, right after that, what do the 12 begin to say? They have no idea who the hypocrite is in their midst, and they start saying one by one, Lord, is it me? Am I the one that's going to betray you? In other words, they were ignorant of the reality of the hypocrite in their midst. And even in verse 25, you see Judas pretending. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus said to him, You have said so. Now don't forget, when when Judas utters those words in verse 25, he's already got the money in his pocket. The exchange has already been made. He's got the coins jingling in his pocket, and he's saying, Jesus, are you talking about me? He's still pretending. To the very end, he's pretending. Know this from this story, and this is a sad reality, that you can deceive men 
If you want to live a double-minded life and a life of religious hypocrisy, and I wish this were not the case, but it's just simply true, you can deceive men about your sin. In other words, the best of friends can be ignorant of the compromises that you have made in your life. Now, sometimes God is so gracious and he just rips it wide open, your sin, for everybody to see. And he exposes it for everybody to see. And he does that in kindness to give you a chance to repent. But you need to learn from this story. It is possible to deceive men. But at the same time, we see at the Last Supper, the disciples are ignorant of who the traitor is. But Jesus is not. Jesus knows exactly who it is that will betray him. And you, need to, and you need to know that. You can deceive men your whole life. You can deceive family members your whole life. But you need to know this about Jesus. Jesus sees through you. He, he sees through all of the mask that you wear. He sees through all pretension. The Bible says that our life is like an open book before the Lord, he sees through us. He knows all things. And we can pretend our whole life, but we never deceive him, not even a little bit. Jesus knows us. I want to quickly mention a doctrinal point in verse 24. So look at it with me. We have two truths in this verse that don't seem like they go together, but so many places in God's word, we see them right beside each other. And I want to point them out just as a quick aside. Verse 24, the son of man goes as it is written. That's the doctrine of divine sovereignty. This transaction took place according to God's plan. And God reveals his plan in his word. This is the doctrine of divine sovereignty. There's no surprises here. There's no, wait a second, I didn't know Jesus was going to do that, so plan B, this is God's plan. The doctrine of divine sovereignty, the Son of Man goes as it is written. But the very next phrase, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. And that is a description of the doctrine of human responsibility. And I want you to see these things in God's word and they show up so many times side by side. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility. If someone asks you, does the Bible teach that God is sovereign over sin or that humans are responsible for sin? Asking the question that way is an error in categories as though it were an either or. But the answer is that the Bible teaches both. God is sovereign over sin and we are responsible for our sin. And what we see here is both truths are taught side by side and neither truth invalidates the other. This is the same doctrine that's taught in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Listen to this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, sovereignty, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men responsibility. This is a biblical doctrine. Okay? The Reformed Confessions teach, teach it this way, that God is the first cause of all things. 
that he decrees whatsoever comes to pass, yet with three clarifiers. Number one, he does it in such a way that he is not the author of human sin. Number two, he does it in such a way that he does no violence to the will of his creatures, meaning he doesn't force you to sin and he didn't force Judas to sin. Number three, he does it in such a way that we must account for secondary causes. God is the first cause of all things, but we must account for secondary causes. You could say it this way, God planned the betrayal of Jesus, but God was not the author of Judas' sin, nor did God force him to sin. And we must also realize that there are other secondary causes at work in this betrayal. I'll mention just one. Luke's gospel tells us that at this moment, Satan enters Judas. This is satanic, what is happening to the Son of God. This is a satanically energized betrayal. Satan's at work in this story. But, but notice, Judas can't blame his sin on God. How many times do we hear that in our culture today? God made me like this. And if God wouldn't have made me like this, I wouldn't struggle with this thing. Judas can't blame his sin on God, and neither can Judas blame his sin on the devil. God didn't make him do it, and neither, neither did the devil make him do it. Judas is accountable for his sin. I'll say this just in passing. The Bible knows that we are prone to resist this doctrine how can this possibly be true? If God is sovereign, we can't be responsible. And if we're responsible, God can't be sovereign. The Bible knows that we struggle to accept this doctrine. Paul deals with it at length in Romans 9. And I'll just uh, say this in closing. If you have questions about this, please reach out to a pastor at GCC. And we'd love to talk to you and, and try to help you through any questions that you have. Now back to Judas. There is no telling, you know, us looking in hindsight, how many times Judas heard a warning in his life and ignored it. There's no telling how many times we could count that up where he felt a little conviction and ignored it. But in verse 24, he receives his final warning. And that's a sober thing to think about, that, that if you die an unbeliever, there will come a point in your life where you get your last chance to respond to the gospel. And verse 24, Judas received the last warning he ever received in this world when Jesus said, Woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Judas ignored that warning. He took the money instead. Later that night, Judas comes back to Jesus and he betrays Jesus with a kiss. That was the signal that was worked out between Judas and the priest to identify Jesus. Betrays him with a kiss. A mark of friendship was the last thing that turned Jesus over to his enemies. And in that exchange, later that night, Jesus doesn't warn Judas again. Jesus basically says... Get it over with. Do what you came to do and get it over with. Friends, hours later, Judas was dead. No more warnings, 
No more chances to repent. And his life is a warning to us. And that's what I want us to consider this morning. His life is a warning to us. It reminds us just how close you can be to the kingdom and yet not in the kingdom. John Bunyan says it this way in Pilgrim's Progress. Then I saw that there was a way to hell even from the gates of heaven as well as from the city of destruction. Leonard Ravenhill says it this way, there's one way to heaven but a million ways to hell. This path is the path of religious hypocrisy. The path of religious hypocrisy. The Bible teaches that those who enjoy this much privilege and are exposed to this much grace will receive greater condemnation. Hebrews 10 says it this way, If we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. Friends, what I want us to understand is that his life is a warning for church folk, for church people, for those who enjoy tremendous privilege when we think about the graces and the privileges that God gives to bring you to saving faith. In Jesus Christ. And if we hear this warning rightly, think, think about how this plays out in our life. How careful should we be, church people? How careful should we be? How sober-minded should we live? How ferociously, brothers and sisters, should we, of all people on planet Earth, turn from our sins? How diligently should we attend to all the spiritual privileges that we've been given? Corporate worship, personal Bible reading, fellowship with the church. How prayerfully should we approach all those things? Asking for a heart to grow in grace and cling to Christ to the very end. This is the warning for church people. How quickly should we confess our sins to the Lord? How often should we come to our God with no righteousness of our own pleading the blood of Jesus Christ? And parents, I want you to think about this. I believe every one of us ought to have a sober conversation with each of our children. This is a warning for church kids. And I want to encourage you to tell them how much God has blessed them. Tell them. Tell them. Tell them to look around and think about the godly examples in their life. If they got a praying mama and a praying daddy and a family that seeks the word of God and tries to obey the word of God and loves missions, please tell them how rare that is. 
and remind them often that there are millions of children in this world that don't have that privilege, that God has been kind to them and give them a Christian family. Make sure they know that. Point out the godly examples that are all around them to observe. Point out that they have access to the scriptures and to the glorious gospel, the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And remind them of how many children have none of these things. And tell them that truth in the scriptures that to whom much is given, much is required. Tell them God requires something of them. Tell them that they've been given a stewardship and and, and exhort them not to squander it. Say, God has blessed you. Don't squander these blessings. Make sure they understand that there's a stewardship that comes with being in, in such close proximity to the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And then exhort them. Tell them, don't sell your birthright for the chump change of this world. Don't walk away from Jesus. Even if you were given $30 billion, don't walk away from Jesus. Tell your children to run with endurance. Not just start the race, but to finish the race with Jesus. And exhort them to do just that. Finish your race. Son or daughter, run it and finish it. And cling to the Lord to the very end. Judas is a warning for church folk, but I do want to note that not all who fall are apostate. And that's a glorious truth. Not all who drift from Jesus die in apostasy. Some return. And you could even say it this way, many come back. We praise God for that. And there's something that happens in the final chapters of Matthew's gospel. You have two disciples that are zoned in upon. Both failed Jesus. One's name is Judas. The other's name is Peter. In these final chapters, you see several times this story of Judas, is, it comes back to several times Peter's betrayal is, is, is also repeated. And so there's this thematic contrast between Judas and Peter at the close of this gospel. But the difference is that Peter is restored by the grace of God. And that's hope for us when we sin. That's hope for us. And that's exactly the difference between a Peter and a Judas. The difference is the grace of God. Yeah, but what else and nothing else? The difference between a Peter and a Judas is the grace of God and nothing else. And nothing else. You might think, but Judas did everything right. He was sorry for his sin. He even took that money and threw it back at at, at the guys who gave it to him. Yes, but he was filled with what the Bible calls worldly sorrow. You can read about that in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. Judas did everything but the one thing that would have saved him. He didn't come to Christ. He didn't come to Christ. He was sorry for what he did in a worldly way, but he did not come 
to Jesus. And that's exactly what you should do when you sin. Is that you should come to the only one who can save you. 1 John says it this way. 1 John 2, 1. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. This is good news for us. Who did Jesus come for? Not those that have it all together and and never mess up. The Bible says that Christ came into the world to do what? To save sinners. This is why Jesus came, is to save sinners. And this is why Jesus died. Jesus died for sin. He came for sinners and he died for sin. And the good news is that he rose on the third day. In the moment of your failure, you need to believe the gospel. You need to believe the gospel. You need to believe that your sin is not bigger, as bad as it is, your sin is not bigger than the redemption price that Jesus paid for sin. He can cover it. And you're going to be forced to believe that or you're not going to believe it. But it's true. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. No matter what it is, he can cover it. And so we should put our trust and Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. I want to exhort you, don't be filled with that self-pity sorrow. Man, I've messed up so bad, I've messed up, I'm worthless, I'll just kill myself and get it over with. He came into this world as a selfish man, he lived every day of his life as a selfish man, and even in suicide, all it was is a self, love of self. He didn't turn his face to Christ. And we were made to gaze upon Christ, not ourselves. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Jesus says, follow me. Don't be filled with a sorrow that drives you to take away your life. All that is is selfishness. Be filled with a sorrow that causes the prodigals to return home to the Father. We'll close with these words. Luke 15, verse 18. The prodigal in the far off country says, I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And the father says, let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but is now found. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for all the ways that you have designed to do us good with the means of grace. And so we ask for those gifts. We ask to be built up this morning in our faith in Jesus. We ask to be encouraged by the love of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ. And Lord, we ask to be warned today in the depths of our souls, about hypocrisy. Lord, we pray that you would instruct us, that you would exhort us with your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.